Greetings, music makers, and welcome to the Music Together Podcast, where we discuss topics about music making and learning that we hope inspire you to, well, make music and learn. I'm Christopher Kayari, but you can call me Chris. I'm joined by my co-host, the notorious GDS, Gareth Dylan Smith, but you can call him... Please call me Gareth. (laughs) (laughs) And today we stroll soulfully and in solidarity through the front doors, back doors, sliding patio doors, and perhaps even some cat flaps of gatekeeping. (laughs) And as is tradition, I'm going to turn that English with an accent into something that you can understand. We're going to be talking about gatekeeping and how that affects music and music education. Welcome to Haikus and Hullabaloo. In this segment, we share some creative poetry about, or not about, today's theme. So go ahead, Gareth. What's your haiku or hullabaloo today? Knock, knock. Who's there? Ah, oh, I'm a gatekeeper now. Opportunities. That is the correct amount of syllables for haiku, so I'm assuming that was a haiku. It was a haiku. Nice. Mine's more of a hullabaloo. I have my own knock-knock joke. Are you ready? Born ready. Knock-knock. Who's there? No, 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 no. no. You can't do that. It's all me. It's all me. (laughs) All right. Let's try this again. Knock-knock. Knock, knock. Hello? Is anybody there? Knock, knock. Oh, well, I give up. Did you like it? I did like it. Thank you very much. Yeah. That kind of ushers us into our our, new, our topic today uh, about gatekeepers. And um, one of the things that I find really interesting is sometimes you feel like you're knocking on a door and like no one's there to answer you. And it's like you get worried and you're wondering what's going on. And then all of a sudden you give up. And unfortunately, sometimes that happens with a lot of people in music, right? They like want to be music, but then no one's there to kind of like help them in. And so they give up. Uh, yeah. Happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, today we're going to talk about gatekeepers and gatekeeping. And so Gareth, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's a gatekeeper? That's a good question. Um, I, I think you might have been the first person to accuse me of being one. Um, uh, so I suppose a gatekeeper is someone who guards and permits or does not permit access to a thing uh, or an opportunity, I suppose. Yeah, and actually, you were one of the very first gatekeepers in academia for me, because when I was a graduate student, I got this email from this dude named Gareth Dylan Smith and Roger Manti, and you two had asked me to write for a handbook that you were doing in Oxford, and you were a gatekeeper. You were an editor who said, who was trying to allow this lowly graduate student in to write about leisure and music making. Well, I suppose that's the thing is you can like you, you, you at that time didn't even know there was a gate, you know, to kind of extend the metaphor. So you kind of it's uh, it's providing opportunities as well. Because I, I, I suppose often I think of the gatekeeper as someone who's someone comes to the gate and you do or do not let them in. But also you can kind of show people the gate. Um, I think that's an that's an important part of the role as well. Um, yeah. Or it can be. Yeah. Um, so you uh you said that you wanted to talk a little bit about academic and uh, how academic gates provide structure. So um, will you talk to us a little bit about, about um, how gatekeeping kind of gives you some uh, 
motivation or uh, ways to guide your success? Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I I think. I guess I hadn't thought of it in those terms again until you and I were talking. But uh, I am a musician and have long been a musician. Um, but I always found it hard to uh, to kind of get any sort of success in the music business. I mean, I'm good at playing the drums. That much I think I understand. Um, I've heard from people I trust that I'm quite good at it. But I could never. I always found it really hard to um, get on the depth lists for. Uh, West End shows and I was in London and I found it hard to get my bands kind of beyond playing bar gigs and I never really knew kind of what to do and when I did have a sense of what to do I didn't have the the nerves or the uh I don't know the kind of uh yeah I guess the nerves to do it really um and with the gift of hindsight I realized that I think the structures in academia made success easier um I think it's safe to say I've come further in my academic career than I sort of did in terms of a commercially successful music one um, so I remember the first conference I applied to was back in 2000. I think I must have applied in 2007. It was a Society for Research on Identity Formation uh, early in my PhD studies. And it was, I, I just, you had to, well, this happens to any, any conference you apply to, right? You fill in, you have to fill in a proposal and they tell you how long it has to be. And they, so I had to fill in a 100 word abstract, precisely 100 words and send it in. And then you get feedback on the abstract and you are or are not, are not accepted. And then, um, if you go, I, I was accepted to that conference and you turn up and there are people all of like minds who are in, interested in your work because they've turned up to share work. Um, and then, like you said, you know, people uh, are interested in putting book projects together or journal issues and they kind of hear about cool people doing things and you write to those cool people and ask them to be part of your projects. And it just seemed, it, it just seemed a lot easier for me. Like the, the structures are, I, I know how I can put a book proposal together. I know who to put the proposal to and I know who to invite to help me complete the proposal and to review the proposal. You know, these... Yeah, so I guess, and that stuff doesn't exist, or for me anyway, it didn't seem to exist in the same way in music. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, for me, um, one of the biggest gates that I've experienced is the job market. And so, for example, my job at where I'm at Purdue, uh, I remember going uh, the first the first gate, you're knocking at the gate going, hi, here's a letter of interest, please let me in. And then they say, all right, let's talk to you on the phone. And then they invite you to campus. And that, uh, that uh, going across state lines to a new place to meet people was terrifying for me. It was my first like tenure track job interview. And um, I was terrified because uh, there's these these people all staring at you and, and trying to decide, are you worthy to come into our gate, our, our job, our university? Are you going to be the type of person who we want to open our gate to or do it, are they just going to slam it shut on your face? And so um, I think we'll talk a little bit more about about our experiences in those in both those gates and similar ones. Um, but uh, just to kind of clarify for our, our uh, listeners, um, we've got a list of different types of gates and gatekeepers that kind of implicate are, are, are part of the music education life, uh, life and career. And so we've talked about publishing. We've talked about jobs. There's also performances like there's performing gates. Are you allowed to be on the stage? Are you going to be allowed to perform with this group? What are some others, Gareth? Uh, yeah. You've talked about, well, I suppose jobs and careers are different things, right? So there's getting a job and then turning that job into a career is a mm -hmm. whole different whole different game. Um, and collaborations, we can talk about those. Um, I suppose I was, uh, we've written the word endorsement down on our list of things to talk about. And um, I, 
Yeah, you're talking about turning up to a job interview. You know, you can't just go to one. You have to be invited. You have to wait for the job to be advertised in in our in academia. So the job has to be advertised that's specialist enough for you. Then you apply for the job and then you get the call and you have a phone interview. And the fact you've been invited to interview is an endorsement of your credentials, you know. And then if you're invited to campus, you're one of two or three people to get that invite. So, again, it feels there's kind of this... Um, you get I like this kind of a I suppose reinforcement of my of one's credentials or one's sense of worth, which um, and again it doesn't have to be compared to my performance career, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I always found it hard to get that in music. You know, it was kind of hard to sell tickets for gigs. It's hard to get people to come to the gigs. It was hard to know if they liked it. It was and whereas I feel like the kind of <laughs> the cues and the clues are much easier to pick up in academia. If people don't like you, they don't invite you to the conference. Mm-hmm. They don't invite you to interview. You know, your work doesn't get published. And if it does get published, that's because it's had to go through, uh, you know, a rigorous set of protocols and processes. And those gates have been opened uh, and you've been allowed through in a sense. Yeah, and it's like similarly with endorsement, this idea that like uh, people ask me for letters of recommendation all the time. And so oh, yeah. now that I've found myself in somewhat of a gatekeeping uh, position as a professor, I can say I would like to endorse this person for whatever uh, job they might be looking for or whatever group they might be trying to get into or um uh, anything that they might be uh that a recommendation might be useful for well and that kind of snuck up on me actually that was i remember the first time i got a reference letter a request for a reference letter a few years ago uh, when i was teaching at icmp in london and yeah someone had left the school and they wrote to me emailed me or oh, gareth do you want to send a could you provide a reference letter and i was kind of like huh now i'm the guy who's <laughs> who's endorsing other people and uh and there's power in that you know uh, i mean and i i felt kind of a weight of responsibility um to do well by that student and also by their potential employer because i don't want to uh, oversell or you know pretend anything to the student or to the person so there's that kind of um i feel like it's a great responsibility actually mm-hmm. yeah and i think one more gate that we kind of have here is the idea of access and i think that's a question that a lot of music educators ask like who do we give access to our programs and and like the the uh the great um, desire is that music is for everyone, but that's not always reflected in who's let into certain classes or certain ensembles in school music. And so, um, yeah, with the, with the idea of access, you're creating this, this network of musicians. And so um, let's kind of talk about that of, of what it's like, uh, how can you identify gatekeepers um, that have to do with access and networking? What are some, um, yeah, what are some uh, access gatekeepers that you know of? Uh, yeah, so I suppose um, admissions panels, right? So you're trying to get into music school and there's the admissions panel who has to decide whether they like who you are and what you bring. And it always feels like a judgment of who you are. Um, but I guess even before that, there's the kind of... And, and I think colleges are doing quite a lot of work on this right now. You know, there's there's the do you even feel welcome to apply? Because you go to the college website and you see, what does it look like? Does it look like the kind of place I want to be? Do these look like my people? Are they making my kind of music? Are the professors anything like me? Are they writing about things I care about? Did the tests uh, that I had to take as a junior in high school get high enough to be able to go to the school? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, so so I suppose that's maybe the first point is, um, yeah, do you even, does it even look like you feel like you might be, like you want to even try to open the gate? Do you even want to knock? Not that people knock on mm-hmm. gates, those are yeah. doors. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I guess, um, well, I'm, I'm thinking straight away about teachers, you know, I'm assuming I've got onto a program 
And teachers are, well, we just mentioned providing reference letters, you know, for people, current and past students, but teachers are really um, vital gatekeepers, gatekeepers in that access role because you get to pick who gets to be in the ensembles, you get to pick who doesn't get to be in the ensembles. Um, so what, do you want to say some more about teachers as gatekeepers? You know, um, I've been really lucky to have a lot of open gates in my musical career. Um, I remember being in high school and... Uh, you know, I was a tuba player when I went to high school and, um, that can't be true. It was, it is, it is true. <laughs> it, <laughs> it will always continue to be true. It's fake and, news. um, I was bored with tuba and so I really wanted to switch to trumpet because I wanted to play more challenging music or at least that's what the tuba parts were in the trumpet versus the trumpet parts in the high school that I was in. And my director opened up that gate to me and said, you know what? I want the best for you, not the best for me and what I think the program is. And so he allowed me to, to, to go into the trumpet section. He opened that gate for me. And that has been one of the most formative moments of my musical career as a musician, as a teacher, as an educator, as a administrator, as, as a person to, to, to look past um, what I might want to see what my student might actually want. And so this idea of access, um, especially as a teacher, it's a really heavy weight uh, responsibility to see how your giving access to students might change their lives for the better. That's, it's interesting you say that actually. Yeah, I think my high school music teacher honestly wasn't that great. However, um, my uh, principal study drum kit teacher when I was at uh, music college was amazing. Um, and he had this concept of, uh, he brought out an album in my second year at the music school called, his album was called Permission. And this kind of idea was who gives you permission? Who, who do you give yourself permission? And if not, who does? And kind of just like, do you give yourself the chance at success? Um, and how do you define success? Um, and it struck me as sort of interesting at the time. And it's a phrase that has remained with me or a kind of idea that stuck with me. I'm actually working on my own album. It's taken me 22 years or no longer than that, however many years since then to give myself permission to make the music I want to make. And I'm calling that album Permission Granted as a kind of homage to Pete Fairclough's idea. Anyway, the point was really, um, he, he was, I remember him being awesome at allowing me to express myself on the drums and I'd never really been encouraged to express myself on another instrument like I played the clarinet and I played the piano and I really badly played the guitar but it was never really about expressing myself and he really encouraged that at the same time as learning technique but the biggest thing I think he did for me and this is I hadn't really thought about it so much since but there was a show he put on a, a gig um, at a local jazz club for to promote his album Permission and utterly surprised me by saying oh uh, my student gareth is going to get up and play on this next tune and i was like oh my god you had to be kidding me but he got he brought me up to the stage and i was on stage with this killer quartet doing like three minutes of free improv on the drums and it was uh, it was absolutely amazing like it felt insane i was like oh my god i couldn't believe he brought me up and uh that someone would endorse my frankly terribly mediocre and aspirational drumming you know at such a crucial point in my career really uh yeah, it was, it was an extraordinary moment. And I think, to your point, I've then tried to do the same thing for my students. I think 
subconsciously, I guess, or unconsciously, I've really tried to help my students as much as I can. Where, where I see an opportunity, um, I try and bring students forward to fill them in. I try and get people to write book reviews that they can, to collaborate on writing things that they can. When I see chances, I'm like, oh, so-and-so would be great for that opportunity, you know, really trying to, um, I guess, lift people up in the same way I have been in the past. Yeah, I love how you, how you're kind of uh, getting to this point that sometimes as a gatekeeper or as a person who wants to go through the gate, the gatekeeper does it with you and and that right. inviting yeah, yeah, yeah. In, into your your mentor's life and your mentor's group that you were able to go through this gate uh to come out the other side as like having permission to make music that you want. That's amazing. It happened with me in um with some academic writing and again totally caught me by surprise i just finished my master's degree and i mean now i understand that professors need to publish things and that's how they keep their jobs <laughs> etc but uh, i didn't get it i was doing i'd finished my master's degree and uh, colin durrant was uh, my teacher at the time a wonderful uh, conductor and musician and um he suggested that we collaborate on turning my master's thesis into a published article and again i was kind of like oh my goodness really like what actually published like ah it never occurred to me to try and publish anything, you know, in an academic journal. Um, and I've, I've offered similar opportunities to students since. Um, and again, they weren't expecting it, but it was kind of like, no, it makes sense. This student is studying something in more depth than I have time for. They're articulate, smart, <laughs> doing the research, you know. Uh, and if I can help them bring their work to market, as it were, then that that's the right thing to do, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, as a gatekeeper, it's not just about standing in a position of power and opening and closing a gate. Sometimes it, it's about going, uh, walking with people through the gate and going back and then finding other people to walk through the gate again with, um, which I think is a really you know, beautiful imagery of what we as teachers can do. Yeah, and that, I guess uh, helping others progress in careers, especially music education, um, beyond the classroom has a lot to do with dissemination of, of research and literature. And so you kind of touched on how there's these gates of conference programs. Um, mm -hmm. And then in writing, there's the peer review. So like as a peer reviewer, uh, you're, you're, you're gatekeeping in a way um, as an editor. Um, and so uh, that experience is, is quite unique to academia right um and so uh, what's your favorite part about being a gatekeeper as a peer reviewer that's a good question um i think you know i, I started the, the journal journal of popular music education with with brian powell um and i didn't i suppose so I'm, I'm thinking sort of gatekeeping kind of crept up on me again you know i started the journal because i sensed there was um nowhere was really publishing much about the topics that I felt people wanted to publish on, and I could see there was a space for this stuff. Um, and I saw my own work needed an avenue or for, for publication. Um, but, but but it was once the journal was up and running, I guess, I sort of, I suppose I'd always hoped people would submit their work to be published, because that's what you need to happen in a journal. But it's, it's constantly kind of a pleasant surprise when people submit something to my journal because they want to publish it. And I think, oh my goodness, Yes, I, they're, they're asking me for permission to publish the work, and the fee. I guess I had. I, I knew what I knew that was going to be the process. I just guess. I guess the feeling of that, the kind of um, the joy in a way. I, it's it's exciting uh, to help people. They, people have to publish work, and they want me to kind of endorse their ideas and get them out to review. And that's uh, that part of gatekeeping I love. Um, yeah, I suppose with. The, so you, sorry, Chris, go on. No, uh, one of my favorite parts about peer reviewing and editing as a uh, a gatekeeper. My favorite part is 
being able to have a voice to share my opinions with the author to help them make a stronger case. Um, so like you can work on something for hours, hours, months, decades, even, and you think you've got a good product and then you send it to someone else and they're like, Ooh, what about this? And you go, that's an amazing idea. Why didn't I think of that? And so like my favorite part about being a peer, a peer reviewer or an editor is to go, Ooh, I think you might be able to focus on that and bring that to light. And I think the readers will love that. And so that's one of my favorite parts about, about that. I think yeah, maybe other people have had different experiences, you know, early on. But I, my, when when I first had my work critiqued through the peer review process, I was aghast. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, I just, I bled over this, and you know, someone's criticizing my work. Um, and that still happens to an extent, honestly. But now I know I I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm submitting my work to the process and for commentary and feedback. And I I, I enjoy that as a person whose gate is being kept. Uh, perhaps <laughs> I, I um, you're trying to yeah, get through the gate, a, actually. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, but yeah, as a reviewer, I I didn't even answer your question the first time. As a reviewer, I like the kind of, again, it's about being a teacher. Uh, and this isn't to condescend or patronize anybody. But I, where I see that work, where I see that I can help make someone's work better, I don't really want credit for that. Like I don't, I don't want my name on it necessarily. But I do want to help someone if I see the work could only be better if you would just do these few things. I love that. I love helping people with their work. Um, yeah. And, you know, I guess... Um, Maybe I'm just better suited to that than I was trying to hustle for getting my band a record deal. <laughs> it's, it suits my uh, pedantry better, I think. Yeah. No, one, no one cares about apostrophes in the music business. <laughs> um, one of the other, the final way that I noticed about, uh, or that I came up with the dissemination gatekeeping is this idea of funding. And I am so grateful for like grants and, um, and uh, fellowships that have allowed me to do the research I want to do and those gatekeepers in the National Endowment for the Humanities or National Endowment for the Arts or internal grants from my university, by being able to figure out how to write grants, I've been able to go through some of these gates that there's no way I would have been able to tour a one-person show across the world on my own dime but because these um, the the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue University thought that it was a worthwhile project and funded that, they opened that gate for me. Uh, we, we've uh, we've we were going to talk a little bit about some of the kind of downsides or negative aspects of gatekeeping, um, and I suppose. Well, we've written down things here like uh, complacency and apathy and laziness. Um, and I wonder, uh, hopefully people do not accuse me of those things, but I, I wonder if there is there are opportunities for these things to kind of creep in, you know. Um, I've certainly, I've become more relaxed about editing a journal in its fourth year than I was in its first year. And I don't think that's turned into apathy. But I hope for the people who are submitting and trying to get through the gate, I hope that isn't what's happening. You know, I hope we're not becoming apathetic as editors, curators or gatekeepers. Um, and I think it yeah, has a lot I, to do with like being a parent, too. I mean, so if you like people I know who have who are the oldest of four children, they're like, oh, my parents didn't let me do anything. And I watch what my three year old or my 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 uh, my youngest uh, siblings doing. And like I got yelled at and there and now my parents are laughing at it. Um, I think it has a lot, little bit to do with as you get older and as you become a 
gatekeeper and more experienced. As you get more experienced, you realize what's really important and you don't waste your time or I don't know if it's a waste of time, but you don't focus your time on things that are not as important as other things. There's a definite learning curve as a, as a gatekeeper. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember being a first year teacher and I wanted the best ensemble ever. He. <laughs> In my high school. And I'm like, wait a second. Is that really what's important to me? No, it's not. It's about getting students into my classroom and loving music. And that's my that's my philosophy. That was at my school and my context that I realized what was more important. And I was able to adjust my own gatekeeping uh, by by experiencing and uh, my students, my context, my and my community, and then figuring out what I felt was important. I think that that's what. Um, I've seen you do with uh, with the Journal of Popular Music Education and you and Brian as as the editors and creators. You were it's like this nice little porcelain thing that's brand spanking new. And then now it's year four. Really? Already? It's, it's year yeah, four. And you're like, all right, year four. what else can we do? Yeah, let's try it. And like you're taking more risks and you're you're um, you're opening more gates and you're actually doing that in a in a uh impactful manner so uh i think let's shameless plug what are some of the gates that you've opened as in jmpe um because you've done some amazing special issues that uh, i think would be good examples of how uh, that can guide our conversation today uh sure well we have a special issue priming being primed right now uh, which is a special issue on drum kit studies coming out uh early next year followed by a special issue uh, on music education in Wales. Um, we jokingly suggested that, um, well, that's an excellent topic in its own. There are roughly 200 countries in the world. So if we did a special issue on music education in each nation state, we'd have basically, this would, we could run that to retirement and still never have completed the list. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and we had a, you were guest editor of a, or co-guest editor of a uh, recent special issue. Uh, what was the title of that? I'm going to get it wrong. Journal of Popular Music Education? Of the issue. <laughs> uh, something having to do with learning, uh, teaching, and uh, making music on the internet. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Thank you. I think in terms of gatekeeping, yeah, it's uh, it's been really interesting to invite people whose voices we suspect we don't hear enough of, and people. I think you wrote to us asking for if you could do a special issue. Um, Right, and it's, so that's a no-brainer. It's like, well, yeah, Chris is doing cool work with cool people who I don't know about, and that was demonstrated when you were asking who should be peer reviewers, and you come up with a list of people, again, two-thirds of whom I don't know because that's not my area of specialism, which is great because that brings more people into the um, popular music education realm or who've already always been there but I didn't know. So, of course, you should bring those names to other people who may not know, and if people already do know of them, it kind of endorses their sense of who they are and the value of their work because it's bringing more attention to that community. Well, to um, kind of drive the, the the hammer of how you open, uh, there is a gate of music technology and online learning. Before COVID times, uh, there was this huge gate of music education and technology and media. So like here's music education. And then on the other side of the gate is technology, media, and people are doing all these amazing things in the in vernacular and popular world, but not in music education sure and so i was like there's like maybe this this uh this 
journal would be willing to open that gate. And the reason why I thought that is because we were at national, uh, national, um, association for music educators, the NAFME conference, uh, the national one. And you were, you were at the, the hotel Starbucks, like face in your laptop, type, 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 tap, 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 um, on the last day <laughs> like me. and everyone was leaving, um, the, 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 the hotel and you're like tap, 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 tap. And like people kept trying to sit down and talk to you and like, sorry, can't gotta work, gotta work. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you, you gave me enough time for me to figure out what you were doing. And you were talking to me about how you were doing, uh, you were working on a special issue of hip hop music education. Uh, Oh yeah, and um, you were you were lamenting on on the fact that uh, you wanted more people of color uh, to be part of this issue, right? And so that's a very very clear gate in music education that uh, people of color, uh, especially black people, and uh, don't necessarily have the same access to music education right. as a lot of other people. Sure, you know, marginalized people. Uh, people from marginalized communities often feel like they don't have a place at the table or they don't have access to the gate. They don't have a way to get in to um, this this uh, institution of music education. Right. Um, and this is, as a minority <laughs> person, uh, a person of color who looked in on it, um, and I can, I can speak a little with a little more experience and authority on that, but... Um, also not in the same way because like I had like a professional flute player as a mother um, who uh, was white and it's like I, I was able I saw I had a little in myself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I didn't have um, some of the barriers that other people have but um, I think it's important to like kind of think about as music educators what um, marginalized people working with majority gatekeepers might feel like. And so, um, uh, when you look there, there's, uh, we talk a lot about how representation is important. Um, and so if you don't see someone like you in something, it's hard to, to imagine yourself as part of that. Right. So, um, do you have any experiences of, of trying to break down those barriers that you've experienced in your life? Uh, you mean for other people? Yeah. Well, actually, it's something I think that we're not necessarily doing. Uh, I always find it <laughs> easier to talk about the things I'm not doing well. Um, so thinking about language and tone of voice and academic writing, I've become really, really good at academic writing. Like there are maybe a handful of things, three or four things I can say I'm actually good at in this life. And writing is one of them. I mean, I'm just a, a natural writer. I find it easy to write and people are kind enough to publish what I write. Um, and that's given me that's made me into a gatekeeper. It's made me, it means I'm editing a journal. It means I'm doing lots of reviews. And a lot of my life is helping people with their writing. And now my job as a professor at Boston University is primarily working with doctoral students. And I'm, it's all about their writing because they're doctoral students in music education. Their music making is less important than their writing about it. So, um, I, and I've been begun to wonder a lot recently about how much access that doesn't allow to people because there's very, very, very specific ways of writing that we curate and demand. And especially if you're talking about like if it's APA or Chicago or there's a particular formatting style or particular 
the writing styles become academic writing is very specific anyway but it gets even more niche when it's it's got to be apa manual the seventh edition you know and i'm constantly hopefully lovingly and hopefully kindly um but still definitely bringing people up all the time on how their writing doesn't meet the standard um and i often wonder about what that says to people who like everyone's new to academic writing when they do it for the first time obviously but uh i found it fairly easy i i, I have always I guess I've read a lot and I found writing fairly straightforward. Some people don't find it as straightforward. So I often wonder about who we leave out. For a start, it's always in English as well. And that's the kind of, um, I guess, the default language of, um, or maybe it's not the default, it's the language I know best. The, the only language I know really is English. So we leave out anybody who doesn't speak English well. And a lot of people write in our field using English as their second, third, fourth language. And we demand very particular things. And I think it's important to have standards. But I also think... I wonder who I'm leaving out by saying, even I'm not saying this explicitly, but, but, but our journal tells people you cannot write in Spanish. You cannot write in Arabic. You can write in English. You have to write in English. It has to be in this very particular way. And scholarship is scholarship. I get that. But I also wonder whose voices we are excluding. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm conscious of there could be many people's voices. And that may be part of why, well, I'm sure that's absolutely a large part of why people from some marginalized communities uh, are remain marginalized you know because we have these rules mm -hmm. that seem important um and there are things you cannot say mm -hmm. if you have to say them in a certain way you know anyway yeah. I've, I've said a lot there yeah i think um uh, so i'd like to i'd like to kind of talk a little bit about like uh, being part of a marginalized community and then working with with gatekeepers who aren't part of that community and it's really interesting how um uh I talk to a lot of people of color um, who who say, you know, like they don't want to research um, about race issues because they don't want to be pigeonholed. Um, I myself have a whole musical that I wrote about how I didn't want to be writing about gay lgbtqi uh a plus um sexuality issues because i didn't want to be known as the gay researcher um and so like there's this huge thing about um we we challenge this idea uh critical race theory challenge this idea that like colorblinding is actually quite racist because you're erasing someone's identity so like to say i don't see color is actually problematic because um that means that you're erasing a context and a history of a person. And so uh, we, uh, some people of color, I know I do, often colorblind ourselves and try to not seem like we are a person of color when we're writing. Um, my example is that like, I really, really enjoy writing about music technology and so, and media. And so I was doing that and it wasn't until, uh, about three years into, um, being published in that area where I started to do research about race and about sexuality and about gender. And, um, it was, it was like, I felt I wasn't allowed to write about me. And um, so I kind of like want to talk to our listeners out there who are part of marginalized communities and say, it's okay to write about things that are personal to you. But the pro one of the challenges is that as a marginalized person working with majority gatekeepers is that when you get those critiques, it's harder to separate 
yourself from your work. Just like you were saying, like earlier, when you were new to the review process, it was hard to, uh, to like not personalize it. Well, imagine taking your marginalization, writing about it, studying it, putting it out there, and then people saying X, Y, or Z, and you don't real, you don't, you, it's hard to understand or realize if they're talking about your identity, the way you write, the way you conducted your work. And it's so emotionally tied into who you are as a person, as well as your work. Well, that's, that was, that's my concern. Yeah. Thank you for expressing that much better than I could. Uh, That's, that was my concern with being the journal editor and in my other reviewing roles is I think I'm reviewing your writing but actually I'm definitely also reviewing you and, and I can't tell what the difference is, you know, and I, I, I assume I can't tell what the difference is, you know, cause I have a job to do and I do, and that job has been given to me and I've observed other people doing it. And the people I've observed doing it are, they look a lot like me. They're the white people doing the job. So it's, um, it's exhausting trying to figure out <laughs> where the kind of, where scholarship starts and racism begins or, and maybe they're the same thing actually at some point. And I, and I don't know. And I'm not saying scholarship the exhaustion may be inherently racist. It may well be. And I, that's, that's a problem, obviously. Uh, it, it may well be inherently racist. Um, I suppose that's, that's kind of what I was trying to say, actually. I, that, I'm concerned that by even being a scholar, I am being racist by saying to people, you have to adhere to these standards. Um, yeah, because the whole system is set up by uh, by racists. So anyway, um, I am racist. You know, I learned that um, I thought I was not racist, but I learned from Ibram Kendi that I am definitely racist. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, I don't intend to be, um, but I'm part of a process and system that perpetuates racism. Mm. So I'm trying to be anti-racist uh, more. Uh, anyway, this is, this is getting very deep yeah. all of a sudden. Which is I cool. mean, and, and, and... Yeah, every everyone is has racist tendencies, and um, it's how you deal with those tendencies that really matters. Because you can't uh, you you can't help what pops in your head, but you can help how you dwell and how you act on those thoughts. So um, yeah, uh, so we'll save that for another I, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, let's not. Okay. Uh, because so talking about this, uh, I mean, as I said, the things I've done seem to be kind of tiny. As an example of a tiny thing I've done, um, at the Journal of Popular Music Education, we asked the publisher, Intellect, if um, we could make available for free. Because normally, if anyone's not aware, normally academic scholarship is behind a paywall. Mm -hmm. So we asked if we could make available for free on the publisher's website any articles we had authored by people of colour. And they said yes. And that was nice. Um, I mean, that feels like in in my role as journal editor that's a thing i can do uh, in the grand scheme of things I, i'm not sure how much that really changes but it's i guess it's those are tiny things we can do um that's and, a huge gate that was just opened and i'm so glad i didn't even know about that thanks for sharing that uh yeah well but then you know i say people of color it was explicitly african-americans and i'm thinking well what about people of color all people of color your article is not available for free mm-hmm. so um you know now i'm thinking about that more and uh I know. I'm, I'm glad that the in, that the that the intellect that the publisher was happy to have that discussion. But uh, you know, it's it's always the work always needs to be mm. like that's not the end. I'm not like, well, that was good. That addressed Black Lives Matter. You know, it, it, there's obviously I have to continue looking for ways to to do better. But it is all about 
being a good ally as a gatekeeper and being uh, making those small changes that as they accumulate become larger systemic changes. Um, if intellect is willing to give all black authors uh, open access or access to all black authors articles, that's a huge step in the right direction, especially uh, for people who might be interested in, 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 uh, communities of color who to access that work. Um, one of the other things I think is important, though, is is considering as a marginalized person working with gatekeepers who are also part of those marginalized communities. Um, uh, I sometimes think of the the Disney movie Remember the Titans, and there's a there's a, a black football coach who is perceived to be harsher on the black students. Mm -hmm. And it's a very fascinating phenomenon. Um, oftentimes a parent uh, who's a teacher might be harsher on their child in their classroom than all the other children. And so um, it's just a, it's just something to be aware of that also may happen. There's also uh, the opposite where this idea of nepotism might happen or community nepotism. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that the yeah, yeah, word yeah. would be where, where um, a person who's part of a marginalized group might only hire the people from that marginalized group, but also not people from other marginalized groups or people from the majority. Um, so it just can get really uh, sticky situations um, that we should just be aware might be happening. Um, because I can't stop myself, I'm going to return to our previous uh, subtopic of conversation. Um, and back to journal editing for a moment. Um, I think because it's, it's always framed in terms of quality, right? And that's that's such a that's such an issue for us. I think in terms of performing ensembles, writing, like so much of what we do, that's actually just often, um, if it's sometimes quality means Western tonal harmony. Sometimes quality means the things I like. Sometimes quality means the things we've always done. Um, and I wonder. I think I struggle with, yeah, kind of p passing out quality from value or quality from um uh a particular kind of format or style and that that brings me to another kind of uh obligation we have and th this has to do with gatekeeping as well i suppose is in terms of our careers as academics um we have to maintain and uphold certain quote standards um and that involves quality in quotes <laughs> of publishing um so I'm very keen on um, trying to allow access to more voices and do things that haven't been done before. Um, fully aware that actually that might not float too well with the people who are trying to promote me or trying to endorse my work or advance me. And that's not like one one needs. I, I would like tenure one day, for instance, not not to kind of check it off, but like that's a valuable thing that'll help my family. You know, there are so. Um, I anyway. Point being, I think it's worth rocking the boat, poking the bear, whatever that you know uh, metaphor is. Um, and I, I'm sure I've often, um, I don't know, I'm sure I've often not helped myself. But I think it's important for people who have the opportunity to be gatekeepers. I think my, my I don't know, it feels like I'm trying to uh, self-aggrandize here, but I think my in my instinct, my inclination is to try and help people where I can. Uh, even if that means kind of aggravating the kind of status quo, it necessarily means aggravating the status quo. And I'd like, I'd rather, I think, 
look back and say, well, I'm glad I allowed access for these people or this person or, you know, accepted this project or did this weird special issue on a thing that didn't seem like it was a real thing to lots of people. But it was to the eight people who were in it. And that's important, you know. Um, I think that's I'm not sure what I'm saying, really. But well, you know, one one more thing while I'm on the topic of me, there's a, I have some close colleagues in the UK uh, and some in the US, but they're in the Punk Scholars Network, and they have spent a long time kind of deliberately poking bears and rocking boats and trying to upturn apple carts and things. Um, not for the sake of it, but to say things that it's hard to say in a tone of voice that it's hard to use. Um, my good colleague and friend Mike Dines started his own publishing company called Itchy Monkey Press because it's hard to say things in the tone of voice that he and his peers want to in academic scholarship. So he does this kind of semi-academic uh, publishing where it's valuable content, it's important content, it's, you know, it's, it's rich content, but it's not going to get through OUP or it's not going to get published by Cambridge. Um, and then it's valued in a different way by the people <laughs> who would be promoting him through his career, you know? I think... Um before we leave the idea of promotion and tenure um so the we're we're, we're lucky in in the united states because a lot of schools offer tenure mm -hmm. um and there's certain states in k12 that offer tenure to, to teachers who um are maybe like in illinois you had to work for a place for four years and you had tenure and it was really hard to uh, lose your job <laughs> um, because they didn't like you. You know, it, you'd have to do something bad or 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 a severance worthy. And um, I think that uh, sometimes we can. There's this a uh, guilt by some uh, people in our profession that like uh, that they experience over tr feeling like they're trying to get tenure so bad. But um, uh, there's there's sometimes some people feel guilt, and I think it's important to realize that. Once you pass the gate of tenure, you have the ability to stand on that other side and hold it open for others. Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to be able to um, to uh, figure out how to play the game so that you can help others through th through the gate. Um, yeah. You know, I, I come in from the UK uh, where I worked for most of my career today. You know, tenure isn't a thing in as much as um, EU, I think, employment law, as long as that. <laughs> remains applicable in the UK. Um, but if you have a job, you know, you're permanent. And it's the same, like you could have essentially already have tenure. I mean, this promotion is a separate process, but it's much harder to fire people in the UK generally than it is in the United States. Um, and yeah, I mean, sometimes that brings complacency with it, but I think also... Uh, like I, I it's 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 worth having like it's worth aspiring to and it's it's just it's comforting to know that you <laughs> have a job. Um, and uh, I guess... Um, as maybe I'm not sure how related this is to gatekeepers, but I suppose there's that kind of the comfort of knowing you won't be fired uh, or can't easily be fired is a good thing. But maybe there's a sense of loss of motivation sometimes. And I suppose that's a concern, right, is we don't want to be uh, kind of relax, rest on our substantial laurels too much you know <laughs> so to uh, all of our 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 listeners out there who are associate professors or full professors or have security um one of the things that that can be done is to figure out how to create the gates that you that you need that you can invite people through and get more people involved and and get more knowledge out there um, right. So I think the, right, your point is, sorry, Chris, um, the point is right. Once you got like, that's your responsibility then. This is your, this is the green light. It's like at that point, there's no excuse for not being a gatekeeper. Like once you have tenure or whatever the thing is you need, then that's now you can start 
like th- that's the point at which you have to kind of like light the fuse, right? Right. And I think that's kind of what we want everyone to walk away from this this podcast thinking. Like it gatekeepers aren't just about saying no. They're about they're also about standing there and waving people in and beckoning them in and saying, "Come on, you can be part of uh, this awesome thing too, and this awesome thing's going to change and be better because you're part of it." One hundred percent. Thank you for bringing that. I feel like we went to a, a dark place, uh, which is important, but also, yeah, gatekeeping is about that. It's about encouragement and celebrating and and helping people to meet you know the standards. Uh, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes, helping people who want to, to get through. And who don't even know those, those opportunities. You know, it, it can be wonderfully empowering to help people, um, yeah, through the gate. It, it really can. And so that kind of brings us to our newfangled notions. This is where... Each of us share our number one takeaway from our conversation that's important that we think for our listeners. And so, as you just heard me say, uh, being a gatekeeper is an opportunity. Uh, as a gatekeeper, you're an opportunity maker and you're an opportunity giver. And so that can be applied to uh, being a K-12 teacher and you create this ensemble that you're gatekeeping and bringing as many people in as possible. As a writer, you can... Uh, you can um, create this new wave of thinking that that other people might be able to walk through and as a performer you can just uh you can figure out how you can get more people to make music with you which actually brings me to the point i was going to make about the um the number one takeaway um from our conversation which is that educators are gatekeepers Mm -hmm. um i mentioned colin doran earlier who's supervising my master's thesis and who generously um uh, encouraged me to publish that work with him and uh, Pam Bernard, a colleague from the UK, or from Australia, by way of the UK, also uh, very early on in my career, for some reason, um, saw value in what I was doing. And I, uh, you know, uh, to, for me as a young, uh, you know, someone writing about drummers and popular music to be endorsed by this, you know, Cambridge University professor was stunning to me. And, you know, really, if it didn't give me the confidence, because I have never really had much of that, but it certainly gave me... Uh, it gave me a boost, you know, it really encouraged me to keep doing what I was doing. And Lucy Green as well, you know, my, who is my doctoral advisor, um, accepted me as a student. And thank goodness she opened that gate, you know, um, and saw me through the, the dissertation writing process. Really extraordinary when you think about it. And those, so yeah, for me, educators are, are gatekeepers. It's a responsibility uh, and we, you know, not one we take lightly. Thanks, Garrett. So this is the part of the podcast where we step outside of the music box, as it were, and ponder other parts of our lives. So, Garrett, what's something that has made you excited or you've really enjoyed the last few weeks? Uh, my daughter is at home, as many people's children are at the moment, doing online school. Uh, and in many ways, it feels like a disaster. Uh, but in many ways, it feels like a success. And I'm hoping this isn't <laughs> the future. Uh, but uh, it's, actually been, it's actually been a wonderful thing because we're at home together all day. And it took us a, a few weeks, actually, to get into a groove of her knowing how to operate her Chromebook and me managing to work at all with a seven-year-old and a Chromebook, you know, happening all the time. Um, but it's been, it's been absolutely wonderful. You know, uh, 
that is something that I will always cherish is however long this lasts, please make it not be much longer. However long this lasts or lasted, uh, yeah, wonderful, you know, wonderful time at home with my daughter that, you know, that I'll never get back. It's just, uh, it's been precious and, uh, and awesome. Mm-hmm. For me, the, the time that we're recording this was, is the last week of the faculty success program from the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, which is a group, uh, an independent uh, academic network that I'm a part of as a, a, a small group coach. And I get to work with small groups of four academics who are from across the nation, usually U.S. Um, and uh, we talk about how to become more productive. And I kind of guide them through a number of different uh, activities and homework sessions and and small support groups <laughs> uh, sessions on the phone where we talk about what it's like being a professor and, and how to do this academic life. And this semester, I just had the best small groups. And I... It's like that that moment when or that that semester where you have the best ensemble of your life or the best class <laughs> that was the most like energizing. I had two out of two this semester. Um that was That's just incredible. Like, yeah, it was just so much fun to get to know them and hear their stories and be there for them. And so um you know like uh it's not quite being gatekeeping, but it's kind of like being like the the person who walks through the gate with them a bunch of times. Like that's so much fun for me doing doing life together just like we do music together that's awesome hopefully some of this delightful banter has resonated with you we'd love to read any comments that you might have about uh gatekeeping or being a gatekeeper going through gates if you enjoyed this episode of the music together podcast please share it with your friends and colleagues Don't forget to subscribe to Music Together Podcasts and leave a comment on whichever platform you're listening on. Please tune in next week to the Back to School Podcast where Beth and Chris chat with K-12 educators about the topic we discussed in this episode. If you'd like to give back and support our work, you can donate via our coffee accounts. That's coffee, K-O-F-I. If you'd like to be part of the Doing Music Together Podcast, check out the Facebook group. Visit doingmusictogether.com or tweet us at musictogether. That's music the number two, Gather. Today's episode was produced by Christopher Kayari. Original music was composed by me, Gareth Dillon-Smith, and our sound engineer was John Stapleton. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of the Music Together podcast. <laughs>